our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Leading off from Shannon Matten's essay Urban Auscultation, or, Perceiving the Action of the Heart, which addresses machine listening in the pandemic. Artists Sean Doc Ray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern discuss with Shannon the stethoscope, the decibel and other histories of machine listening, along with its epistemic and political dimensions and artistic deployments. Could you begin by introducing your, yourself and your work just in general, before we get on to the specific questions of machine listening and so on? Sure. So I think I'm probably, I'd like to think a pretty um, principled, principled, undisciplined person, intentionally undisciplined. I came from a non-academic family. My dad had a hardware store. My mom was a special education teacher, majored in chemistry, then switched to English. And then uh, when I thought I was going to go work in advertising, but instead I was encouraged in my last semester of undergrad to go into grad school, which is something I hadn't even considered really. And got into a PhD program in media studies, but took a lot of classes in architectural and urban history and theory and landscape theory. And then um, uh, became interested in information studies, uh, which not really um, library information studies, not training to be a librarian, but just kind of the more theoretical and aesthetic dimensions of that field. And then did a postdoc at Art History, which again, I some, not something I targeted, but was the Art History Department in the postdoctoral program kind of chose me, which was really exciting to be exposed to that field for a few years. And then um, went to move to the new school into a Department of Media Studies like 16 or so years ago now, but taught a lot with designers. And that's a wide variety of designers at Parsons School of Design. So I have either co-taught or had students in my classes from architecture, urban design, uh, design and technology, communication design, just a, a wide variety. Um, and uh, and my work uh, has been inspired by all of those different collaborations. My specific interest in sound as probably comes from the fact that I was I don't know, trained sounds a bit too kind of overblown, but I took a lot of music lessons. I actually think I was a pretty good flautist. I was thinking of going to conservatory if I hadn't gone into a traditional kind of college um, college pathway. And then also play the piano and violin. Um, uh, didn't pursue those professionally, uh, but then I was had the good fortune of being paired with a colleague when I started at the new school in 2004. I shared an office with a musician slash composer. And just our everyday conversations really made me realize that a lot of my work about, about architecture and media was very um, ocular centric. 
a lot of the architectural criticism, uh, historical scholarship, really focused on the building almost as if it was an objet d'art, an object of art that was something to be seen, not something to be heard or something to be walked through or experienced. It was almost as if it was being read as a painting. And my conversations with my colleague, Barry Selman, really helped me to realize all of the um, inaudible components that weren't being addressed in contemporary criticism and scholarship. So that really planted a seed or laid kind of a ground note. I don't know what sonic metaphor you want to use here. And that has been a thread or a refrain that has echoed throughout a lot of my work over the past decade and a half or so. Great. Thank you. Uh, I mean, what, what an amazing eclectic uh, uh, past and trajectory. I mean, I, I kind of want, I kind of want to dive into all of that biography and everything, but maybe, maybe <laughs> let's, maybe let's leave that and see what comes out. Um, you know, you, you wrote this, you were saying before that you, you, you had uh, coronavirus and that you were, you were already thinking about machine listening. Mm -hmm. And then, then suddenly the pandemic context gave you a way of thinking those different things together. Um, you know, could you, could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, why and why thinking about the pandemic or pandemic listening, you know, ends up being so closely concerned with machine listening or, or maybe also, you know, what even is machine listening or whatever way you want to get into that question. Sure. So I will say that a lot of my research comes out of prompts, invitations to contribute. So Last summer, I was contacted by, um, and Joel, you might know some of these folks, um, Omar Barada and Leslie Hewitt, two artists who teach at the Cooper Union. And they were organizing the Interdisciplinary mm -hmm. Studies sem uh, seminar that they invited me to be a contributor to. And they told me that, I'm just looking at the email here, they had three themes. They wanted me to choose to be a part of either the expansion, the counterpoint, or the dream work theme. And I just couldn't decide between any of them. So I decided I'm gonna write something that focuses on all three. And because I had in the past thought a lot about listening to infrastructure, about listening as a methodology to help us understand logistical systems and infrastructures, I thought um, I wanted to find an application that would allow me to weave together those three themes for their lecture series. So this is really productive for me to have either um, a, a framework, a, a, a term to bounce off of. A lot of my work doesn't just erupt from my brain. It usually comes from somebody putting a constraint out there and then I figure out like where my interests and what I can do well would bounce up against this um, kind of prompt that I've been given. So that's where the article came from. I kind of hatched the idea last summer before coronavirus or anything was kind of a, a glimmer in anybody's eye. Um, finished the piece, shared a draft with it at the Cooper Union in early December, I think it was. And then um, uh, I write for Places Journal, which is an open access venue. A lot of most of my writing is is takes part through Places, and it's a couple month review process, uh, really intensive editing with um, my the team there. And by the time it was being prepared for publication in early spring, the pandemic was then upon us, and I realized that a lot of the ideas that I was thinking about back in December had new resonance in this new context. So I took a lot of what I already had produced or put together in December and, and added, wove some more pandemic or kind of uh, uh, quarantine related themes throughout that existing piece. So, so if, if the pandemic didn't supply the immediate context or the immediate inspiration for the essay, then, then was it machine listening? And, and you know, what do you understand machine listening to be? I mean, one of the things that interests us is 
how to name the problem that we're concerned with. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the research that we've done, it seems that machine listening has a couple of different sort of origins. You know, um, it comes out of a scientific discourse where it's one of the terms used by scientists to talk about the application of AI and, and machine learning techniques to audio, but it's not the only one. And then it seems that there's a, there's a, 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 a sort of a parallel or related stream into thinking about machine listening via um, com computer music. And um, there's a, a number of composers who work with computers who talk about machine listening. And so we've been trying to think about, you know, what, what is this object? And I'm just, I was just so struck by your essay that it names this object machine listening and that it seems to have so many cons similar concerns to the ones that we do. And I was just wondering, you know, how, how do you think about machine listening? How does it come to you as a problem? Why, why should we be concerned about machine listening um, in, in the context of the pandemic or otherwise? Great. I think maybe the origins of this piece were very similar to what I mentioned earlier um, in terms of my, the birth of my interest in sound and space, because I was realizing that uh, just by talking to a musician colleague that this was something that was not echoing and a lot of the scholarship and criticism I was reading. And uh, all throughout 2019 and the prior years, I was hearing so much about machine vision. Um, so uh, concerns about automation, about facial recognition, about the inherent biases and injustices that are kind of rooted into, programmed into this technology. Um, I thought there's parallel stuff happening in the sonic world that isn't really being addressed as much. So just hearing the um, absence, the silence on relative silence on this compared to the proliferation of, of research and criticism. And I think kind of general public growing public understanding of the political problems of machine vision. I kind of wanted to contribute to make, help people to realize that other sensory modalities are being automated um, as well. And we need to maybe transport or translate some of those critiques applied to machine vision over to to see how they work in the machine listening realm as well. Why do you think the yeah. why do you think there was a, a that lag between sort of computer vision and machine listening as a object of interest? Uh, well, I think that it's part of just this general critique, the fact that, you know, a lot of the uh, founding figures in sound studies, when they had to justify the existence or the need for such a field, were critiquing this long kind of Western Enlightenment tradition that privileges of ocular centrism. The fact that we kind of have this epistemological bias towards sight as the quintessence uh, the uh, uh, paradigmatic or quintessential mode of knowing. So I think that's one kind of larger macro scale framing for why not much attention is relatively is paid. There's also the fact that we don't have necessarily a cultural literacy or even like the linguistic elasticity to talk about sound is the way that we do to talk about vision. Um, and I, I think it probably is not as well known, given how much press has been offered to especially facial recognition and the fact that many cities have actually officially outlawed it. This is in major newspapers. Um, in the, the lay public or kind of general readership knows to some degree that machine vision and all of its various manifestations exist. There's much less press uh, uh, given to kind of the sonic components also. So like these larger historical epistemological disciplinary framings, and then I think kind of the general news agenda is there's a dearth of attention to these. So those are just two factors why there might be less in the sonic realm. Um, you, you mentioned uh, your previous research in, in um, infrastructural listening or listening to in, in, infrastructure. Um, 
as like a, as one of the earlier threads that brought you in to write this most recent piece. I was just wondering if you maybe could walk through um, well, what what you mean by that, by by listening infrastructure, and then how that connects to how that brought you to um, yeah. sure. So I think I started by again those early conversations with my colleague fifteen plus years ago, and I was writing a lot about libraries. So my dissertation, which I did in two thousand one, I think is when I did the field work for that, was at the Seattle Public Library. So I wanted to. I was essentially an ethnography of the coming into being of a building. So I looked at how the plans evolved, how it responded to how you had this kind of mixing of cultures, this European avant-garde architect coming to Seattle that was establishing itself on the world map thanks to the presence of Microsoft, et cetera, and how a new kind of stylistic vocabulary came into being through those negotiations. And I didn't talk much about sound in my dissertation. And then when I turned it into a book, I realized like this was a real gap in my initial field work. And I realized that a library is a building typology that is defined in large part by its specific sonic conditions. You know, the historical myth is like the shushing environment, which is not really so much the case anymore with more noise making activities happening there. So I wrote a couple articles and incorporated quite a few um, library and archive related themes looking at either sonic collections, sonic archival collections, or um, a ways of listening to archival materials or the archival resonances and acoustic conditions of information architectures themselves. So that's one way. And then I started to get a lot more interested in infrastructures when that word became a lot more popular in the academy, especially in media studies, which is the field that I, I guess I most identify with. And um, was thinking about what we could learn. There's There was so much um, talk of making the invisible visible that was honestly annoying me. It was so prevalent. And I wanted to know, again, what we could learn by about infrastructure by listening to it. So I wrote a couple pieces about artistic work, methodologies, even work in like structural engineering where people are putting contact microphones on bridges and dams, et cetera, to essentially hear structural weaknesses that are not visible um, or are not detectable in other ways. And then more recently, I wrote a piece about um, uh, listening to logistics. So a lot of that work in media studies on infrastructure has now expanded or morphed into an interest in supply chains and logistics. So I wrote a piece, a chapter a couple years ago that still isn't out yet. I think it's probably going to come out in the book of 2021 because academic publishing moves painfully slowly. But that was about what we can learn about supply chains by listening both up close to machinery, docks, historical kind of vocalizations of stevedores, et cetera, and the macro scale. So it would distant listening be to an entire kind of global global supply chain, for instance. So that's a, like a larger scale manifest. So I guess I started at the architectural scale by listening to a reading room or listening to an archival collection, then scaled it up to infrastructure, and then even further to think about what we can learn by listening to supply chains and logistical systems. And then this urban auscultation piece was the most recent piece, and that I think kind of crosses, crosses some of those scales. Shannon, um, I wonder if you could say something about um, the kind of distinction between um, human and non-human auditors in, in relation to you know, infrastructural listening and, and whether you see that as sort of a hard distinction, but, you know, between human listening and machine listening or, or whether it's always sort of somehow blended and, and interdependent. Human and non-human um, auditors, um, a, a, as you put it in the essay, um, in relation to infrastructural listening um, and, and you, you kind of... Um, 
talk about how, how those sort of um, two forms of listening are, are often interdependent or, or, or blended. Um, and, and I suppose when we were um, thinking about how to define machine listening, you, you know, is often listening in the absence of a, hu of a human auditor, or it has to be defined against the human um, somehow. So I'm just interested in, in thinking with that binary. Sure. So this is kind of a, a, not very funny, but it's a joke with my editors that everything always comes back to epistemology for me. So how kind of the ways we know the world are manifested in the way we design it materially, everything from the scale of an object to a piece of furnishing to an architecture and an infrastructure. So for me, like the biggest, most interesting distinction between human and non-human listening is the different epistemologies, ways of knowing, modes of sensation, how they're operationalized in the world, which we like to think of as kind of being pretty distinct. This is part of the critique of the of hyper automation that we think that there is so much nuance and poetry that is lost when you rely on machine vision or machine listening. But there's actually a lot of kind of coded regimented stuff that happens with the way human ears listen as well. So I think maybe looking at the different ontologies, methodologies that are inherent in those, um, and then the cultural specificities as well. I mean, this is something that anthropologists and archaeologists have to offer and realizing that there's not one naturalized mode of listening or not one epistemology or ontology that is constructed through the practice of listening. So um, just seeing all the differences that can be illuminated, here I am, illuminated, what's the sonic equivalent of that, kind of rendered audible through kind of those disciplines and how Amplified. we might find parallels <laughs> with the way we kind of build algorithms and machines to listen for us. Um, so it, it draws attention to and helps us to better understand like both, and again, it's not a binary, but the, if we want to just simplify for the sake of this conversation, it can shed light here. I keep going on with the ocular centrism. It, I'm just going to do it. It illuminates what it means to listen as a human and what it means to listen as a machine when you can kind of have them have a counterpoint, be counterpoints to one another. And we also recognize that they can be in productive relationship. It's not a matter that all automation is necessarily bad. This is again, something that I think we can learn from the critical discourse about machine vision. And that rather than just entirely doing away with algorithmic governance or with uh, facial recognition, there are ways that for example, like heat mapping or some type of machine vision can be useful, helpful for public health officials or um, ecologists, for instance to be able to identify hot spots, areas that then you can um, pinpoint more kind of on the ground, thick data kind of methodologies. I think a similar thing could be applied in machine listening and that listening, doing that distant listening, listening kind of at scales beyond the capacity of human ears, even collective human ears can help us then to determine how we can better deploy or more effectively employ humanistic methodologies to better understand particular phenomena. So that's just one example of ways where we can think about the different affordances of human and non-human ears to be used in tandem rather than looking at the machinic as an erasure of or a threat to the more poetic humanistic um, ways of going about things. Could you maybe give a, a couple of uh, concrete examples of um, machine listening that we sort of that should be valorized and, and you, you know, I can think of a couple from the essay, but um, I don't know if there's anything that you're particularly interested in discussing or you, you find particularly powerful. 
Um, well, a couple that I did mention in the essay were kind of ecological applications where you're listening at macro scale for um, acoustic ecology, for instance. You could see how, for instance, development in a particular area, kind of real estate development or construction is perhaps driving out particular species. So the other remaining species are kind of shifting the pitches of their bird calls or the kind of symphony of animal non-human voices is changing in relation to human activity on the periphery. That kind of larger things than a machine listening 24 hours a day over the course of months or years that a human couldn't sit on a corner and do, for instance, could then offer an interesting kind of um, sampling, could provide an interesting or helpful mode of sampling or uh, the capacity to choose a, a really uh, particularly rich field site for a human researcher or a team of researchers to then go in. Another area that I was just reading about tonight, there was an article on efflux about kind of uh, aquatic listening and underwater soundscapes. So particularly thinking about how a lot of the underwater extractive work that's happening and naval research, for instance, is changing um, acoustic ecologies, aquatic acoustic ecologies. That could be a way where kind of a specifically strategically deployed machine listening sensors are then helping humans to better target their activity. So those are just a couple examples. And then also I mentioned the structural engineering. So monitoring the security of things like dams and bridges and other types of really important kind of physical, logistical architectures. Um, you probably, for the sake of the maximizing public security, want to have multiple ways of, of uh, monitoring the structural soundness of these things. So both having cameras trained on them, having kind of periodic inspections by trained inspectors, and potentially having round-the-clock listening to making sure the machines are working as they should, that the bridge is vibrating in a consistent way. And then if it's not, then you know to deploy a team to take a closer look or listen to it. Those are great examples. Quite, quite. I don't want to. Say, not not optimistic. Um, but listening to you, you talk about machine listening that way. I'm just struck by, by the fact that the predominant forms of machine listening at the moment are not those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I always worry a little bit. You know, it, for, in my own thinking, it's often been you know disability discourses and things. You know, it's so obvious the you know the role that a voice assistant, for example, might be able to play, uh, machine transcription and so on. You know, I, it's not possible. You can't you can't have a politics of machine li listening that is kind of, you know, chuck it all out. But at the same time. I feel that like those kinds of um, applications do a certain amount of work politically to smooth the um, the entry of machine listening forms of machine listening that are so overtly tied to capital that the whole methodology is kind of bound so deeply up with you know platform capitalism or surveillance capitalism or whatever you might like to call it that. I always feel I always feel a bit nervous actually about about foregrounding the benevolent applications of machine listening because um, because I just feel like the the the, the juggernaut it, you know is coming uh, and the 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 scale of the challenge is so significant that that I I yeah I think maybe maybe I'm just commentating on my own psychological processes <laughs> now but like you know I I, I worry I worry about. I'm just I'm just really worried about the the beast that's coming, and I, I kind of I'd be interested to hear your reflections on 
you know, the politics of machine listening more generally and some of those, you know, you, you list many nefarious applications uh, in your essay and how to think about those together um, with the, the, you know, the more benign ones. So absolutely. I mean, part of it maybe is the fact that I'm so immersed in all of the um, uh, critical and in some cases alarmist literature. And actually, I don't even know that it's fair to call it alarmist because these things are already here. They're already happening and we need to be aware of them and the kind of the really frightening and nefarious applications that sometimes I want to think about rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, recognizing that there are potentially kind of pro-social, not benevolent because there's always kind of an under a potentially exploitable undercurrent there, but um, more positive for lack of a better term, applications. But you're right, there are myriad um, uh, exploitative, extractive, pick your negative adjective kind of applications of these type of technologies too, for surveillance purposes, for policing, for um, given your work on borders and migration, thinking about how to determine the fit of particular asylum seekers, for instance, to assess the veracity of a claim for migration or asylum seeking, which is something that I know that several folks are writing about and that Lawrence Abu Hamden's artwork is kind of is uh, is addressing. So there are lots of contexts, aggression detection, um, uh, gunfire detection. Uh, we could go on, but this is because these are kind of the ones that are coming immediately to mind right now. But yes, there are myriad cases that are not just even speculative applications that are actually in practice right now today and are doing harm. Even things that feel uh, benevolent or kind of um, innocuous, like um, voice assistance. This is something I think some of the other folks you're going to be including in your curriculum, like uh, Xiao Cheng Li, you're talking about, is the the default, the training set for a voice assistant, um, and it involves so many kind of acoustic assumptions, which naturalizes or normalizes certain voices and renders anyone with an accent, for instance, often kind of a, a lot of communities of color, rendered inaudible to the machine. Uh, which makes uh, perfectly functional bodies feel aberrant. Um, and the whole politics of disability um, that are woven into a lot of assistive technologies as well. So these, again, are things that are framed as being benevolent applications of the technology that have perhaps in some cases unintended or maybe Trojan horse uh, kind of type of um, more nefarious dimensions or applications uh, on the flip side. It's quite a... Quite a um knuckleball of a question i think <laughs> james it's like, um, also, also it was a trap because i was like can you can you can you please tell me all the good things about machine listening and now let me tell you why it's actually bad don't those good things actually <laughs> lubricate society for you know um it also made me think of like wendy chun's you know what she she wrote in um control and freedom which in a certain way that these alarmist narratives also kind of normalize existence of these things, the presence of these things in society. So like, like even we might feel good about being quite critical and alarmist and everything, but at the same time, it like, that almost, that almost makes us, that almost acclimates us to the presence of these things around us, almost as much as the kind of utopian narratives. And she kind of says that we should be looking at the actual the, the actual functioning of how these things operate in society, which I do think that your work, Shannon, is, is um, 
although although you do you are quite aware of the the ideological kind of role of a lot of these things i think that you know that it's something your work is often deeply materialist and it's looking at how how these things are actually implemented and how they actually work in the world um this isn't a question i guess i was just sort of following on uh just thinking about that exchange and that kind of like that tension between um between the alarmist and the utopian you know like and then we get into this like stalemate this kind of like loggerheads and just, don't, when Wendy Chun offers that as like one way out is to look at the actual function. Right. I'm glad you think I do that too. I mean, I don't know that it's even something I intentionally start each project saying that like I must have an explainer part of this article, but I think that might be my intention or that might be my nature. And that because I'm interested in ways that ideals are operationalized, which means the methodologies there, um, kind of the theoretical methodologies and then how they're actually deployed with available technologies. Um, and um, and then again, what epistemologies they embody. I think just the fact that those are questions that are always in the back of my head for everything I'm working on, that it does lead me to want to understand how concretely something is operating. And I think this is part of kind of the whole, again, this is not a new concept, but the whole uh, movement towards infrastructure literacy that Lisa Parks and others talk about um, in order to understand kind of like how satellites are embodying a particular geopolitics or how our cell phones work, all these things that are naturalized and invisibilized because of their ubiquitous seamless presence. We really need to understand the physics in many cases and the mechanics and the electrical engineering by, and, the, and the regulations and economic policies through which they operate because there are value systems and ideologies and modes of governmentality that impact our everyday lives and kind of politics and um, any, um, uh, in, um, kind of reinforcing kind of modes of inequality too that are built into all of those seemingly bureaucratic technical things. There's much more at stake there than just the wonkiness. Um, mm -hmm. we, we were chatting with um, uh, Vlad and Jala a, a few days ago about his um, work with Kate Crawford, the, the um, anatomy of AI. And, and one of the things he, he was saying is that um, one of the difficulties of um, sort of producing a, a material critique of, of a voice assistant is the perceived intangibility of, of the voice um, and of, of sound and listening, that it's sort of hard to represent structurally mm -hmm. in material terms. Um, how have you sort of found um, that side of things and, you know, what, what are the um, difficulties of writing a, a kind of material critique of, of sound and listening? Sure. So this is what some of the early scholarship in sound studies, I don't again, uh, there are people been writing about sound for a long time, but I'd say like early 2000s when mm -hmm. the field was kind of burgeoning. So for example, like Emily Thompson's book, The Soundscape of Modernity, she is essentially rewriting urban and architectural history saying, how can we uh, rewrite this history uh, without necessarily having access to vast archives full of, record of urban recordings. So it's a way of finding ways of listening at media of, arc of records in other modalities. So how can you listen to a photograph? This is something like Tina Camp has done in her book, Listening to Images, too, which is really kind of a really valuable contribution to kind of critical race studies as well. So what are the different politics that can be re revealed by trying to discern or extract extract is such a, uh, a rapacious verb, but it's trying to kind of pull out or productively um, uh, uh, interpret 
sound from a tactile or a visual medium, for instance. So I drew a lot of inspiration from Jonathan Stern's work, Emily Thompson's work, Tina Campton, more recent years. And then for my book, which came out in 2007, I have two chapters about sound. One is about kind of the uh, city of the wired city, the city of telecommunications. And the other one is about the city of the voice. So how kind of uh, the oral culture um, and the acoustic demands for it informed architecture and urban planning for thousands of years. So there again, we have some writing about it, kind of the Truvius and other kind of architectural historians, um, even before they were called that, were writing about acoustics. And we have kind of material traces of these cities that can give us some clues as well, but we don't have audio recordings in many cases to rely on. So how can we use in some cases speculative methodologies? How can we read literature or look at artworks or photographs to um, hear what is represented visually in those records? So this is a matter, kind of an interesting mode of triangulation that requires triangulating methods and in some cases speculative methods. There are folks in archaeology who practice kind of archaeoacoustics where they um, think about how a space was made, what, mater what its um, material composition was, the dimensions of that space, and what type of sonic activities might have happened there, from which you can then draw kind of inferences about modes of public engagement, the type of governments, the type of kind of religious activities that were happening. So again, some more hardcore positivist archaeologists are critical of this mode because it does require some poetic license and speculation. But I think there's something kind of really beautiful about this triangulation of methodologies. So these are some of the challenges methodologically in addressing sound, something that seems like an ephemeral and immaterial medium. Um, but also I think the potential for, this is something that Sean's work kind of addresses as well, of alternative modalities for publication. So again, over the past 20, 30 years or so, maybe even longer, um, scholars, artists, this is where, again, a lot of artistic work becomes very useful. Thinking about sound artists' work, um, the use of interactive publications that allow you to actually incorporate virtual reality or sound recordings um, can uh, create different modes of affective argumentation that a traditional textual publication can't. So these are some other ways of making an argument about sound um, that... Um, newer technologies make possible that weren't perhaps kind of in, in centuries or decades past. I'm wondering if like with um, with that answer, in, in, that was really interesting to, to imagine just yeah, how scholarship can can sort of study the sounds of some time that we have no recordings of. And I and um, so to me that or for me that opened the door to thinking about also the, the silences, like what would the silences be of of some um, some of these other times and places and just like um, that could be approached in a similar way. And also just uh, thinking about historicizing silence as a, as a project and how that shifts over time as to what silence means exactly. And I was thinking about the, the at the beginning of your essay, you talk about the new sounds and silences of the pandemic. And I think in that case, the silences are referring specifically to the fact that there's a lot less activity on the street and, you know, it's just quieter. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think, yeah, I, I was wondering um, if you could expand on that a little bit, because I, I feel like the new silences of a regime of machine listening, like, do mean a different thing than the silences of, for example, you know, this burgeoning industrial city that's like, you know, where there's tons of construction happening and, and they have to invent the decibel to, like, 
the, mm -hmm. this uh, discussion of loudness that you have, which seems very particular to a particular urban context, that quiet and silence might mean one thing, but I wonder what quiet and silence might mean now. And if ultimately, like I wonder if, you know, silence even makes sense to a machine or what if it does, then what silence means to um, a machine listener? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm thinking about, and I forget the name of the researcher who has been, um, for a large portion of his life, who's been tracking kind of like the hundred square feet of silence or something. He's looking at the fact that, you know, as we are um, global supply chains, air travel is essentially um, infiltrating even natural soundscapes. So there's really no silent um, corner of the world anymore, which presumes that the lack of human sonic interference that condition equals silence when it doesn't. There's a rich kind of potentially loud ecology there that a machine or a human ear, if it were present, would hear. There's just not the machinic sounds. There's not the sound of kind of industrial infiltration. So the fact that noise itself, and there's been a lot of theorization about noise as being this highly kind of culturally specific, subjective definition that is uh, rooted in race and class and gender to some degree. I think what constitutes silence to us is similarly kind of culturally determined. Um, just following that thre thread a little bit further to go back to what I was saying earlier about methodologies and the available historical records and resources we have to piece together historical soundscapes or even contemporary soundscapes. There's been a lot of research in kind of archival studies and history about archival science silences or, um, or uh, gaps or absences. So what voices, and this could be both literal voices or metaphorical voices in terms of subjectivities are not represented in the archive. Um, and these are cases where sometimes you, you use speculative methods. So Dia Hartman proposes the method of like critical fabulation, where you use some kind of narrativization or speculation to imagine based on what the gaps are, what the contours of the, the boundary of that gap would be, for example, slave narratives, for instance, voices that are so marginalized that they were not regarded as, as worthy of or necessary to be preserved for posterity. So how are some of those silences then kind of either kept open to mark those historical absences or how might they be filled in through kind of speculative or triangulating methods? So that's going again, more along the cultural methodological thread. And then, in terms of the way I was talking about it in the article, I was thinking more of just the, um, uh, I don't want to say the word objective, but the decibel level of the city has gone down dramatically. And this is, again, we're kind of naturalizing, normalizing the decibel as this unproblematic way of measuring some kind of quantitative or quantity of sound. But these are the kind of the, some of the silences I was talking about. The fact there were many fewer cars in the city, that people weren't going to work, that cities were noticeably quieter. There were some articles about how seismic researchers were able to do some things over the past few months that they haven't been able to in a long time because the world just quieted down down to some degree. But I don't know that anything, if we can say that there's ever kind of a zero point of silence, um, because even before human ears or um, mechanical ears were present to listen for certain things, there were other, I've kind of talked myself in a circle here, I'm not where I'm going, but um, I don't know that there is such a thing. I would, I'd be, honestly, I'd be curious to hear what you have to think about your own, what, how you would respond to your own question. But I don't know that aside for, outside of an echo, outside of a, a kind of acoustic, what's it called? An echo chamber. Would be, uh, echo, not, would say that again? An echo chamber. An echo chamber, that's it. Outside of that, I'm not sure that it's possible or outer space. Um, 
if in a, in a realm of or kind of organic life, if silence is a possible condition, I don't know. We're in, uh, we're fast getting to tree falling in the woods uh, yes. territory here. Well, I think there's one one very particular place we can look at in the in the article, like for, for me, and that would be the, um, well, in the, in the sense of like silence as like that, which doesn't exist in the archive. If we take that as like one definition of silence, then the kind of like total, total kind of like distributed listening and accumulation of data presents like almost no gaps, you know, if we take it to its, you know, framelessness kind of conclusion. Um, but you kind of mentioned um, at one point that there, there might be the opportunity to choose not to listen to certain things, right? That somehow in developing these like um, systems of machine listening, we should, we should as, a, as a society or whatever, whatever determines that there's certain things we, we want not we want to not listen to that should be inscrutable I think is the word that you use so I was thinking about that inscrutability as a form of silence but that silence yeah is not a natural thing it's something it's like a political thing that we have to strive for so I, I guess I was thinking like maybe that would be one one mo mode of think, thinking about silence uh, in the in this condition yeah, I agree. And this is, again, drawing some inspiration from work that's happening in the visual machine looking machine um, vision realm where um, some cities are deciding just not to record, not to put up cameras or to um, uh, produce um, artistic modes of resistance or like culture, what we used to call culture jamming um, or to um, uh, practice um, uh, to engage practices of refusal. I mean, there are different kind of political communities that use these different words of resistance, refusal, um, uh, non-use, all of them have different political valences, but these are ways to kind of produce silences, maybe you could say, that they're a principled choice to just not participate, to either not render your face visible to a machine, to not render your voice or other kind of sonic emissions audible to a machine, or to just not have the machine altogether. And there might be some other kind of alternatives within um, kind of within that span. But these are ways that we're kind of we're producing sonic absences or silences in the record, I guess we could say. One of the things that um, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, you know, you know, who, as you know, has done, done a lot of work um, thinking about the po politics of silence and, and silencing, um, said in, in a recent lecture on Soundbleed was that um, with machine listening and, and sort of forms of forensic listening um, that we have now, the distinction between background and foreground ha has really sort of been dissolved to a degree that what we used to think of as background noise is now just as easily assimilated and sort of analysable and, and um, operational. Um, so it perhaps, you know, but our, our understanding of noise and silence is also tied up in these notions of foreground and background, which have a lot to do with with human audition, um, and they start to um, become sort of much blurrier with, with non-human audition. Could I just actually follow up on that? Mm. That because it, I was going to say, if we're thinking about inscrutability and foreground background, you know, a patent I was looking at recently that um, is for a, a form of sonic branding. Um, they give the example of um, uh, soft drink cans, where the um, the the patent was for a, a meth. Uh, basically, you would you would design the ring pull so that it would make a sound that was particular to that 
brand of soft drink, but that that they it wasn't that wasn't that was that sound was not designed for human hearing. So that there's no necessity that a person be able to distinguish between a Coke and a Pepsi or you know whatever, but that the the sound would be legible, interpretable, and comprehensible to the machines that were listening in the home. So, you know, then, and so, you know, that immediately makes me think of, um, you know, this idea of operational uh, listening, you know, which kind of comes out of Trevor Paglin's thinking about the operative image and, and Faroqi and, and the sounds that are not intent, no longer need to be intended for human ears, right? That where's the, where's the foreground and where's the background in the, in the pulling of that ring pull, right? Um, that, they're, they're flipped. Um, for for me, it's the the sound of come, forthcoming refreshment, and for the <laughs> machine, it's you know crucial brand data that, that you know can be linked to whatever it is that that terrifying regime um, <laughs> is linking it to. Yeah. So just yeah, yeah, just in terms of thinking about you know silence, inscrutability, foreground, background, it seems like that's relevant. Absolutely. I mean, this reminds me of another piece I wrote a couple years ago about, it's called Things That Beep. It was about the history of sonic branding. It was just a short piece, but I also wrote it in kind of an online venue so that I could include audio files and video and kind of video of historical advertisements. So I'm looking at things like the sonic branding of espresso machines and vacuum cleaners and car doors, which Kristen Bistro, um, kind of, um, what's her name? Karen Bistroveld has written yeah. about. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, I have to look up that piece. Potato chip mm. bags, and then up to kind of the beeping and the sonic branding of our machines, and how certain aura or personae are attached to particular platforms based on the beeps and chimes that they make. So, but yes, thinking beyond that to how this type of I don't know, branding still applies if you're kind of producing sounds for listening machines. But um, yeah, that's a really interesting direction to take to kind of extend that research. I mean, I, I actually, I'm just sort of tempted to um, bring us back to, to sort of a, a slightly earlier point in the conversation. And um, we've been talking, um, James, Sean and I, about the, the need sometimes to ask sort of dumb questions to get, um, you, you know, the um, in, in a way, a, a broader sort of answer. And I guess I was just thinking about you know, the pan, the pan acousticon and this sort of um, experience of, of living in a society um, in which you feel that you, you're constantly being overheard um, and your sonic worlds are sort of captured um, and um, scrutinised and instrumentalised. And I just wonder if you, you could say something about how you understand the kind of the social experience of living in a, in a pan acoustic sort of context and you know in, in terms of hu human relations and behavior and and I guess it comes back to you, you know we were sort of talking about um certain dystopian and utopian horizons of, of machine listening and um if we sort of think about um the panacoustic context in, in social terms and in terms of its social impact do, do you have a a sort of a way of summarizing your your kind of sense of and and feeling um, as to what, what that what that entails. I wish I had thought about that more, but uh, I just thinking about it specifically in terms of the pandemic. I mean, there was some discussion and I actually did see shortly before I published this piece, I wanted to see if anybody had yet patented 
kind of a panacoustic technology that will allow for kind of diagnostics of listening for a particular kind of cough or any types of sonic indicators of illness that could be used for COVID-19. And sure enough, some people would put up on ArchiveX some examples of kind of systemic diagnostic um, machine listening kind of technologies. So this is something where I can imagine a lot of kind of stifled sounds, um, uh, use of technologies to kind of um, garble or mask the voice, um, just as we, as we see the rise of both techniques and technologies to thwart recognition through visual technologies. I would imagine similar things would be happening or we could have more strategic silences. People just not talking in public spaces where there, pretend, where there is the potential for eavesdropping. So again, there's that potential for using, using silence and refusal strategically or using kind of these techniques and technologies for masking. So those are a couple examples, and those could be at multiple scales of design. They could be gadgets, you know, face masks that have kind of listening and speech altering capacities to the long history of using kind of architectural acoustics to do these types of things too, to the incorporation of kind of um, ambient technologies within an architectural space or in urban spaces. So there could be multiple scales of deployment of these types of potential masking um, technologies. Again, I again, I hasn't, haven't thought so much about that myself. Again, I'd be curious to hear if any of you have any thoughts about these potential short or long-term social implications for the Panacousticon. Could I, could I just ask as a follow-up um, where you think a sort of more systemic critique rather than a kind of responsive, reactive uh, masking um, sort of response to audio surveillance might might begin or what do you you know you, you said before that you read a lot of stuff from you know machine vision and so on and some of that's beginning to get traction i mean i guess one of the things we are interested in is what how how could we you know help to produce a systemic critique of machine listening and i wonder if you have any reflections on how you strategically you might go about that Sure. Well, there is the potential again of regulation refusal. This is what some people are when they're when they're calling for a systemic approach to or resistance to machine vision or surveillance, rather than just asking individual people to produce kind of individualized consumer responses. They're instead in calling for regulating, breaking up big tech, etc., holding big tech accountable for thinking about the potentially nefarious applications of their technology. But then there's also the larger root issues that some of these things are getting at, like the policing applications, the fact that we're using machine vision for um, asylum, for instance. These are larger things that go way beyond the use of the voice as a diagnostic. We have to think again about like larger patterns of like climate change in enforced migration patterns or the breakdown of criminal justice and social justice infrastructures in our society. These go way beyond this band-aid application of machine vision and machine listening as um, stopgap measures to fix broken systems. So these would be kind of going even beyond just critiquing the system or fixing the system of machine listening itself to fixing the larger entangled systems to which machine listening is an insufficient and partial proposed solution. I mean, it sounds uh, like uh, that's a critique of uh, sort of techno solutionism. And, it, you know, in the context of the pandemic, that's, you know, just been so clear, the techno sort of the drive towards techno solutionist responses, you know, in relation to contact tracing apps, um, 
you know, you mentioned before COVID diagnostics. We've been um, looking at a, a number of the these organizations. One, for example, called Voca AI put out in March a call for people to provide voice samples um, for the purposes of producing a diagnostic tool. And they had 30,000 um, they had 30,000 samples generated within a couple of days, right? So it's not just that the company, you know, the companies are sort of uh, pushing um, techno-solutionist responses, but there's a sort of broad cultural buy-in too. People wanted to do their bit, right? So they provided their samples and, you know, the, the legal terms of that provision were extremely murky. And this is a company that provides voice assistance to call centers um, most of the time, you know, and so it's not at all clear what the possible implication, I mean, I'm not trying to sort of impugn them, it's just to say that it wasn't clear at all. And But there's a desire to contribute to these kinds of technical and political responses to an extremely unsettling situation. I mean, and there's the, the question of the, the role of the way in which big tech is moving into the health space uh, more generally in relation to the pandemic. I was really interested, actually, the way that sort of it seems like, you know, you, you in the piece you talk about the way in which the, the city is often metaphorized as the body. And so if we think about listening to the city, then, um, you know, you talk about the stethoscope and then immediately it becomes a kind of a diagnostic um, relationship and just listening as a form of diagnosis. Um, it just seems like there's like a, there's something yeah interesting uh going on listening as diagnosis and the way that's specifically unfolding in the pandemic context and the way that machines are increasingly work moving towards diagnostic or kind of forensic applications and the diagnostic then is used as um the first step towards predict kind of predictive applications right. so um and then there are again plenty of nefarious applications there but just this idea that people feel compelled or even um as if it's a civic duty uh to contribute a voice sample to these these applications i mean these are i think a couple different phenomena that are converging here one of them is the fact that the use of technology there have been several people who've written about this the use of technologies in crisis situations tends to normalize them and it allows for their convenient application to go well beyond their initial use for a crisis. So this is the case where you have convenient mission creep or you have something that is actually institutionalized for the long term that was originally deployed under an ostensibly kind of delimited application for a specific crisis context. And then you also have kind of the magical thinking, the, the allure of, isn't it amazing what machines can do? I mean, I remember even you had mentioned that um, Trevor Paglin's work, and you also mentioned Vladin's work with Kate Crawford. So the project they did together at the, um, was it the Prada Foundation, where they were using, I think it was, I forget what ImageNet, I think it was ImageNet. They were using kind of ImageNet um, uh, data set to look at facial recognition. And lots of people were contributing, I think at the exhibition and online, contributing their faces to say like, isn't it interesting or funny to see how wrong the machine or how right the machine is about me. But there was also a discussion among a lot of African-American folks, or sorry, our black, not only African-American, but black community on Twitter that I don't want to contribute my face to this. It might be a fun kind of diversion or a, um, a novelty to folks who aren't already typologized and surveilled to see how a machine sees you. But if you're part of a marginalized community that is already, already, always already typecast by this type of technology, I don't want to voluntarily contribute my face to the data set too. 
So this is these are some of these compulsions that there's the novelty um, and entertainment value of contributing just to see how the machine looks and how right or wrong it is. Plus also the crisis context that gives gives people a sense that this is almost like a civic duty to to give up your data. No, that's exactly right. And I think um, what, what, you know why thirty. That's why thirty thousand people would offer up their coughing samples to Voca AI in, in, in a couple of days and also because the allure of um, being able to get a diagnosis instantly over the phone r- rather than having to risk, you know, going to a hospital or, or a doctor is such a powerful one. So the kind of imagined payoff is sort of, you know, very seductive um, mm-hmm. And it's very tempting not not to sort of think in um, a broader in- infrastructural way about the, the the problematics of participating. In I'm some, reminded in such of a that um, that book by Bernard Harcourt where he talks about expository power, and you know it does seem like the power to to not exactly force, but to promote exposure of oneself, you know, whether auditory or otherwise, is an increasingly important front politically. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitvega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au